This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week, we catch you up on the biggest local and state stories you might have missed. Two Simeon High School students both shot and killed yesterday. Their murders only four hours apart. Chicagoans got a glimpse of what goes on behind closed doors at City Hall during the first hearing to examine the 2020 census results. And a hint... The debate got heated. Chicago is set to get $1.9 billion under the Biden administration's American Rescue Plan. The mayor wants to close a $733 million budget shortfall next year with a portion of that money. As leaders, we must commit to a new set of truths, starting with the truth that equity and inclusion must be at the center of all of our work. Joining me for those stories and more, Laura Washington, Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst. Laura, great to have you back. Great to be here, Sasha. Thanks. And Alex Nitkin, editor and City Hall reporter for The Daily Line. Alex, welcome back. Thank you so much. Great to be on. We'll start with you, Alex. Mayor Lightfoot delivered her 2022 budget address to the City Council on Monday. What were some of the highlights? It was a lot. This is a $16.7 billion budget that we're talking about, a big step up from last year. And overall, you know, it's fair to call it a, a good news budget, at least from the way the mayor presented it. And when you think about it, it had better be, you know, with the $1.9 billion in federal money coming online this year, a big question was going to be how the mayor was going to use that. We got a big part of our answer this week with her budget address. This was really night and day from last year's budget, the pandemic budget, when the COVID, you know, blew a billion dollar hole in the budget and the city had to take all kinds of drastic measures, uh, tax hikes and fees and things like that. The mayor led off her budget address by saying it has no new taxes or reduction in city services, no layoffs. The word new, I think, is doing a lot of work there because the property tax levy is going to go up a little bit, not as much as last year. But I think she is really trying to turn more attention to this whole panoply of new programs that she's trying to roll out that are going to be funded by the American Rescue Plan. Everything from, you know, homelessness services and boosting uh, investments in affordable housing Mm -hmm. to new sort of violence prevention tools outside of the police department to, you know, economic development initiatives. And we're starting to see in the first budget hearing today, aldermen start to sort of pick apart some of those ideas and ask the most important question, I think, right now, how they're going to be sustained after this federal money dries up. Right. It boosts police spending, too, right? It does pretty significantly from about $1.7 billion in the 2022 budget to $1.9 billion. Critically, though, it really does not increase the budgeted headcount for the police department. That keeps pretty much the same 
Instead, the police department is really going to be focusing on trying to fill existing vacancies that it already has. It has more than a thousand vacancies. That's going to be the priority. Though the budget is really going up in large part because of the new collective bargaining agreement that was just approved by the city council that implements a big retroactive pay raise for the rank and file police union going back to 2017. So, you know, a lot of organizers and, and folks who are opposed to more police spending are looking at this as a really new investment in policing, but really a huge part of that increase in the police budget is just increasing for, you know, wages from two years ago, from when the oh, okay. police did not have a contract. The mayor also proposed a budget for people who are struggling financially, a $500 monthly cash assistance for low-income families. What are the details, Alex? Right. So this is from a $157 million line item in her plan that's just under the banner of assistance to families. That includes about 31 or 32 million, I think, is the number that we got from them for this direct payment program. And it really caught a lot of people's attention because there was an alderman, Gilbert Viegas, who was her former floor leader, who had proposed basically, you know, a very similar kind of program, a sustained, essentially guaranteed income on a monthly level. The mayor either resisted that or, you know, didn't take it up immediately and then this alderman came out afterwards and basically said, it's glad that she's finally done it, but why didn't we do it earlier? So that's the tension that's playing out right now, I think, mm-hmm. between herself and the city council, who ultimately she's going to have to find enough votes to approve the budget, which, although should be easier than last year, is still, you know, she has her work cut out for her on that front. Laura, Mayor Lightfoot's essentially proposing a universal basic income, Right. She absolutely is, and there's been some experience with this around the nation, particularly in Stockton, California, which has done some research, a similar type of program structured a little bit differently, and where it's been seen as a big success. And as Alderman Villegas himself referred to this, it's kind of a nice budget sweetener, something that she's throwing in to sort of take some of the pain out of some of the things that might be more controversial, like increasing police spending. Um, But it's going to be controversial because Alderman Villegas is like, this was my idea first, and you could have done this earlier this year, and you didn't. He's saying to the mayor, you were just trying to keep it for your own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's he's rumored and reported to be thinking seriously about running for mayor, challenging her in, in the next mayoral election. So that's, that's interesting. And then there's also members of the Black Caucus who are concerned because – the idea of uh, reparations for African Americans has been on the on the table in in the Chicago City Council for for decades since Alderman Dorothy Tillman first proposed it many years ago, and those, those ideas have gone nowhere. So particularly Black Caucus Alderman Jason Irvin has was, has already said that we we can't look at this until we look at reparations because of course reparations would be directly aimed at African Americans, whereas this is a program that would be presumably across the board, not just a program for low-income families. So would you say the mayor's budget aligns with what a lot of progressives in city council want to see? I think we'll have to see about that. I think Alex is correct about concerns that are going to get raised about spending on policing. Uh, one of the things that's important to remember about that spending is it's also, also going to include spending on mental health services for police officers, which has been something that is in dire need, and we've seen a number of suicides in the city. So there's obviously some need there. But the progressive left in the city is, is calling on not only for, you know, no increases in police spending, but they want to see the police department and police services defunded. So I yeah. think that that's going to be a debate that's going to continue. Even though her budget includes more spending on police, Alex, the police union is still opposing the mayor's vaccine mandate. But so far, she's not budging from that October 15th deadline, is she? 
No, she was asked about this a couple days ago, and she said, absolutely, we're sticking with this October 15th deadline for all city employees to get vaccinated. She said that she is in negotiations with different unions. It was notable that when she first came out with this mandate, it wasn't just unions that have been traditionally you know, combative to her that resisted, but also unions that have been on better terms with her administration, like the Chicago Federation of Labor, expressed some sort of queasiness about the idea of having a blanket mandate. The mayor basically said, we're working with all these unions. We are having productive conversations, but she said, we really haven't gotten anywhere with the Fraternal Order of Police. You know, I mentioned earlier that the agreement that was just struck with them was four years overdue, and that is because the relationship between the mayor's office and her negotiators and the Fraternal Order of Police, the rank-and-file police union, is just so toxic right now, especially after, you know, we heard FOP President John Catanzaro's first reaction was not like the Chicago Federation of Labor saying, we have serious concerns about this. It was basically saying it was like a, a Nazi mandate, saying things that a lot of folks found really offensive and reprehensible, that yeah. was really dramatic and really, I, it's sort of not clear what exactly the next step is or, or what the recourse is going to be for those police officers who don't get vaccinated by that deadline. Laura, Alex called it toxic. What are your thoughts on the mayor's relationship with this police union? <laughs> well, I couldn't come up with a better word than that. And, 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 you know, the mayor's in a, in a really interesting position because her critics in the police force see her as being anti-police, but the progressive folks I was just talking about a minute ago see her as pro-police, and it seems that she can't win. But she's had words of repeatedly with the head of the police union. She's not spared her, her own criticisms of, of the police union. I think she feels that they are not fair-minded partners that are willing to work with her. And then and police officers, of course, are, the morale of the police department is very low. I mean, you remember what happened when the police officer French was killed, and she went to the hospital to try to console the, the family of the other officer that was killed. She was turned away by police officials. She's not well-liked or well-respected by not only the FOP, but by many people in the police force. Back to Alderman for a moment, Alex. They're moving forward on creating new ward boundaries based on the most recent census number. Can you tell us why we should care about ward remapping? Well, I think it goes to the question of why you should care who represents you in the city council, who is the person you complain to when you have a tree down or a pothole or something like that, and who you can advocate to on citywide issues that are important to everyone. So I think that everyone should... If they care about who their alderman is and what ward they're in, I think they should care about who their representative is going to be, especially if they're part of a specific ethnic or racial or religious minority or protected class that under the Voting Rights Act needs to be wholesomely like represented within the city council. They are really going to be wanting to, you know, you're going to want to make sure that your voice is represented as a community in the city council. So these are the conversations that, are really getting underway and will have been underway, but the, the process is really now getting underway finally in earnest for the city council to come up with a new map. They do this once every decade after the census, and this deadline is coming up really fast. They have until December 1st to propose for at least 41 of them to agree on a new map. Otherwise, two or more versions will go to a popular vote referendum. Aldermen were calling for more resources to help 75 unaccompanied Afghan children who arrived at O'Hare on Wednesday and the hundreds more that are expected to eventually be resettling here in Chicago. What's the latest on that request, Alex? Well, we did hear a little update on this 
in a city council in the Immigrant and Refugee Rights Committee, that new committee that met for the second time ever this week. Alderman got to hear from Nubia Woman, who's the leader of the city's Office of New Americans, which is really going to be tested as we know that, like you mentioned, a number of Afghan families are going to be resettled in the United States. She was saying that several dozen of them have already arrived, that, you know, some city officials and community leaders have met them at the airports. And this, uh, again, Alderman were really grilling her on what can we do about it? What is going to be the connection between our ward offices and the delivery of those city services? You know, it's sort of a similar kind of line of questioning that we hear from aldermen since they're really like the front lines of dealing with these community organizations. And yeah. this is something that we're going to be hearing, seeing a lot more pressure on the Office of New Americans, which is kind of a small, you could call kind of obscure office in the, the grand scheme of things. But it's really going to get the spotlight now that this resettlement is happening here. And there was another heartbreaking story about violence this week. Two Simeon High School students were killed in separate shootings just hours apart on Wednesday. What do we know, Laura? You're absolutely right. One thing we know is that that this is not a new problem, and it's a very troubling and heartbreaking trend. Mm -hmm. I think there's something like 19 children under the age of 15 or 14 have been killed so far on the streets of Chicago this year. And, of course, there's there's many more younger people, a little bit older, who have been killed. The two young men who were killed were both 15, Kentrell McNeil and Jamari Williams. They were, you know, on their way home from school, on their way to a basketball game. One of them was hanging out at McDonald's when, you know, people pull up, jump out of cars and start shooting. Uh, The police have no suspects in in custody yet. It's unclear who's behind this. When you hear the stories of these children, these young people and their families, there's nothing to indicate that they were members or active in a gang and Mm -hmm. they were being targeted for that reason. And even if they were, it would still be a terrible thing. One young man was being mentored by this great nonprofit, Good Kids Mad City, which does so much important work to keep young people safe and off the streets. And there was a basketball game that one of them was going to that was designed and set up just for that. But it seems as though these kids can't get from their doorsteps of their homes to their schools and back without their lives being in jeopardy. You surprised this hasn't gotten more coverage? You know, it, we, it doesn't because, unfortunately, we in the media, we count. In fact, the more things, things like this happen, the less news value they seem to have. Um, it's become such a common thing now in, in Chicago, in particular, around shooting young people, this was something that was unheard of several years ago, and it was something that people would not tolerate. But now it seems like we've become almost numb to it. That's Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst Laura Washington. Also with us, Alex Nitkin, editor and City Hall reporter for The Daily Line. And we still have plenty of news to talk about, including stories like these. A rift between Chicago Bears leadership and the owner of Soldier Field, the Chicago Park District, may be brewing as speculation swarms over whether the team is planning to relocate. But that's not the only source of contention. And for the first time since 2008... The Chicago White Sox are winners of the AL Central. For the first time since a restrictive Texas abortion law went into effect, a Texas doctor is now facing not one but two lawsuits. One lawsuit was filed by a man in Arkansas, the other a man in Illinois. Alex, I'll come to you first. The Chicago Bears were in the news quite a bit this week, and not just because backup quarterback Justin Fields will be starting in this Sunday's game. Yeah, you know, a lot of this goes back to earlier this spring when some reports started to circulate that the Bears were interested in putting a bid on the Arlington Park racetrack to move there and move out of Soldier Field, where they've been for decades and decades. And I think that the reaction, especially, you know, from Mayor Lightfoot and and other folks, was kind of to scoff and be like, oh, yeah, sure, 
like this was just sort of a negotiating tactic. Some new reporting has come out this week, including some reporting on, you know, internal emails that Tony Arnold of WBZ unearthed that showed they could be really serious about this, that the Bears have put a bid down, that these emails show that there has been some real conflict between the Bears and the Chicago Park District, which owns the property that Soldier Field is on over the state of the stadium, um, the engineering. It's a 97-year-old facility. Right. It has the smallest capacity of any stadium in the NFL. And now it seems like there is the real possibility that the Bears are, are very seriously considering moving out of the city. I'm, I'm not sure if they'd still get to call themselves the Chicago Bears or if it would be like a Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim kind of situation. Right, yeah, true. It looks a lot more serious now. Earlier this summer, Mayor Lightfoot sounded pretty dismissive about the Bears possibly leaving Soldier Field. What's she saying now, Laura? Well, she's saying that she's definitely determined to keep them. She's been much more vocal and much more specific in, in, in more recent days. She's herself a big Bears fan, and yeah. she says that she understands that it would be not only a tragedy just from in terms of our, our civic pride, but the amount of revenues, the, the, the amount of attention, the amount of energy that having a, a major football team in the city, especially one with the history it has, would be. So she's saying she wants to sit down and really work with the Bears, and, and, and that sounds like they haven't really had the kinds of substantive conversations that they really need to have to, to nail something down. And to your point, Alex, the mayor of Arlington Heights has not shied away from saying he'd welcome the Bears out to Arlington race course. What has Mayor Tom Hayes been saying? Right. I mean, just picking up on, on what Laura was saying, first, some of these emails that we've seen show a really acrimonious relationship between the Park District and the Bears and sort of a lack of underlying trust over the state of the stadium. And at the same time, the mayor of Arlington Heights, Thomas Hayes, you know, he was on the radio the other day basically saying, come on, we've got this 326-acre area that's now a racetrack, but horse racing has really declined in popularity and the village of Arlington Heights has not had a great relationship with Churchill Downs, which owns that horse racing facility. And so he is saying, come here, we have more than 300 acres of space. You can own the property. You don't have to worry about negotiating with the Chicago Park District or these space constraints. You can set up concessions. You can set up sports betting. Do whatever you want with it. And that really seems to be the center of his pitch. And it's hard not to think that that is appealing based on both the tenor of the conversations in these emails with the park district and also just the space constraints. I mean, anyone who has driven past Soldier Field on Lakeshore Drive knows that the stadium is, you know, nestled within the Armed Forces Memorial there behind those pillars. It's not like the team can just knock those down and expand the stadium. So that is really, I think, what Arlington Heights promises in terms of, a, you know, a benefit. Brief the other side of that, of course, is that Lightfoot is just going to say, hey, this is Chicago. Do you want to be in Arlington Heights or, you know, right. a mile away from the part of one of the busiest downtowns in the country. And Alex, briefly tell us about Chicago's sports betting ordinance. Yes. Yeah, so this is an ordinance that was introduced by Alderman Walter Burnett a couple months ago. His ward includes the United Center. And so he said that he was introducing this sort of on their behalf. This would officially allow the five major sports venues in the city. So the two ballparks, uh, Soldier Field, United Center, and Wintrust Arena would be able to apply for licenses. They would pay, you know, about $25,000 a year to the city, and they would be able to run sports betting within their, their ballparks. And so we know that, you know, this is still sort of pending. There's a lot of furious lobbying going on behind the scenes. I've heard that some casinos might be, you know, are, are lobbying against it, that they would rather 
just have that business housed in, within casinos instead of within the ballparks and stadiums. But this is something that you'd have to imagine that this would be in Mayor Lightfoot's interest to get this through as a way of enticing the Bears to say you'd be able to continue to, you know, stay and, and operate this this other sort of sort source of revenue right at Soldier Field. And Laura, who's lobbying the Chicago City Council to allow betting at all of its sports arenas? Because we're talking Soldier Field, Wrigley Field, Sox Park, United Center. Absolutely. Lots of money, lots of cloud yes. involved here. And, and, you, and there's a cloud-heavy name, and that is John R. Daly, who is the son of Cook County Commissioner John Daly, the nephew of former Mayor Richard M. Daly, the cousin of Patrick Daly Thompson, who is an alderman uh, representing the 11th Ward, which is uh, still the grand central for the political power of the Daly family. He is working as a, as a lobbyist, specifically with the White Sox, which, of course, has all, always had a very long and close relationship with the Daly family. And the Chicago Sun-Times has reported on this, and it raises questions about whether or not this is a conflict of interest, whether or not it suggests some undue influence on the Daly family. And it really, it puts, the, I think, the Daly family in a, in a hot spotlight that they'd probably rather not be in right now. In other sports news, some fans are excited right now. I want to mention Chicago's got two teams that are in the playoffs. The White Sox have clinched their division title, first time winning the Central League Championship since 2008. And the Chicago Sky eliminated the Dallas Wings last night in the first round of the WNBA playoffs. So an exciting time for us to stay hopeful. (laughs) Alex, the beloved Irish beer Guinness announced that it's opening a restaurant, pub, and brewery here in Chicago. It's only its second location in the U.S., so... Uh, It's going to come to the already bustling Fulton Market District. What else do we know about this development project? Yeah, this is very exciting. I mean, this is something that is coming to, like you said, this is an area that is growing extremely fast. This is in Fulton Market, and something that I noticed, this is around Morgan and and Kinsey, roughly, in an area that the city planning rules, zoning rules, were just changed to allow residential development in that area. So, you know, we're going to see some new apartment buildings come up in that area, too, so you can just walk over to the Guinness facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that, you know, I'm pretty excited about. I think that visiting that the Guinness factory facility, what brewery in Dublin has been sort of a bucket list item of mine, and now maybe I can just go directly to the one in Chicago instead. Right. It opens up in 2023, so that'll be Something exciting for the year after next. Uh, Laura, switching gears, a Chicago man made news this week for filing a lawsuit against Dr. Alan Braid, the first Texas abortion provider to publicly reveal that he violated the law that uh, took effect recently on September 1st. What do we know about Felipe Gomez? This is a very interesting story. He he is actually a former Chicago lawyer, and he's no, no longer practicing, but he is suing uh, Dr. Braid as he can under this Texas law. Any the Texas law provides anybody that suspects that doctor is is performing abortions illegally can sue for up to ten thousand dollars. And it's interesting the law was structured so that only individuals anywhere, not just in Texas, can uh, file suit. Felipe Gomez says this is not about trying to make money off this. He's, he's and in fact he's raising questions about whether or not abortion is should be illegal. He sees this as a test case to force. Texas officials to be able to explain yeah. what is provided and what is not provided under this law. And in, in fact, he, he, he has said something to the effect that, you know, if women, you know, they're, if they're being permitted to, to not wear a mask, why aren't they not permitted to, to get abortions and to make that choice for themselves? And Laura, we got to talk about R. Kelly. His trial is winding down. Though it's in New York City, Chicago was ever present in the testimony and, and allegations, wasn't it? 
Right, of course, because he's from, from here, because he spent so much time here. Many of the women uh, that have allegedly been harmed by him have Chicago connections. And the and it's, an interesting thing here is that the cases come down to who do you really believe, as often these cases do. Uh, there's been reams of testimony from women who were hurt by him, who were um, abused, sexually assaulted in some cases. But then on the other side of it, his, his defense decided not to put him on the stand, which was probably wise because he would have undergone a terribly excruciating cross-examination. But to make the case, to, to bring forward a number of people who worked for Kelly, who have associations with Kelly, who have said they never saw anything untoward, never saw anything wrong or, or ever saw him misbehaving with underage girls. So it's, 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 a, it's been a lot of powerful testimony, and, and it's coming to a close. And after this trial's over, there's going to be a trial in Illinois, right? There's actually several other charges that he's going to have to come back and face here. And you remember, he spent quite a bit of time in the Metropolitan Correctional Center here before he was transferred yeah. to New York. Before we go, I want to turn to a local media story uh, about a struggling publication. It's something that we know is near and dear to you, Laura. So we're hoping that you can fill us in on the Chicago Reporter, starting with the history of the publication and some of the important work that it's done over the years. Thank you for, for asking. The Chicago Reporter is nearly 50 years old. It'll be 50 years old in July. And it was started as an independent nonprofit to do investigative reporting about, around race and, and income. And at the time, and, and for most of the time that it existed, the reporter was the only game in town, particularly in Chicago, in terms of asking that big question, what does race have to do with it, and what, and what can we do to, to repair the racial injustice and, and to focus on racial equity? And it's thrived for many years. I was proud to be its editor and publisher for some time. Mm-hmm. About a year ago, the Community Renewal Society, its parent organization, uh, put it on hiatus, as they called it, removed its editor and publisher, and it actually stopped publishing completely for uh, several months. It's now publishing again, but it has never returned to the important, hard-hitting investigative reporting that, that it made it famous, and it, and, it, and it had so much impact. And that's just tragic at a time when, of course, the national conversations are, is completely around racial equity. So uh, the news this week was that uh, a group of us alumni and friends of the Chicago Reporter have formed uh, a group and called the Friends of the Chicago Reporter to try to work very hard to, to get the Community Renewal Society to restore this important reporting and to also to celebrate the 50th anniversary, which is coming up next year. And nice. so we're out raising money. We have a, a, a website, uh, friendsofthechicagoreporter.org, and we're reaching out to the hundreds, if not thousands, of civic leaders and community leaders and activists and journalists in this city who have relied so much and so heavily on, on its reporting over all these years. We're almost out of time, but I, I'd love to know what stories you're both going to be following in, in the coming days. What, what should we be paying attention to? You first, Alex. Well, my next two weeks are going to be 100% consumed by watching city council budget hearings. These start at 9 a.m. every morning from now until two weeks from today, and they go sometimes well into the evening. Until Sounds I'm like fun. Asking questions. So that's what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> How about you, Laura? I'm looking at, you know, like the continuing uh, terrible violence that is gripping the city and the fact that everyone from the mayor on down has, has put forward solutions and, and nothing seems to be working. And I'm just looking for a way for the city powers, the FOP, the mayor, uh, the aldermen to, to get together and to come up with some real solutions. And I just haven't seen that conversation happen yet. That's it for the Weekly News Recap. I want to thank Chicago Sun-Times columnist Laura Washington and Alex Nitkin, editor and city hall reporter for The Daily Line. Thanks for talking news and politics with me, folks. 
Thanks for joining us for the weekly news recap. To really understand the stories behind the headlines, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Then please take a few seconds to give us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.